if I could, let me uh, interrupt and ask you to take your Bible or your phone or your iPad, whatever you're packing today, and let's head for Galatians chapter 1 in the New Testament. Galatians chapter 1. If you need a Bible this morning, just raise your hand, and uh, Eric in the back will be sure to put a copy of God's Word in your hands. Just let him know that you need one. And there's a note page in your bulletin if you're visiting today, which would be a great thought for us if you are visiting, maybe for the first time, or maybe you're looking for a church home. Uh, We have kind of a routine that we go through, and one of those is to grab this little note page out of the bulletin and and have that handy as we spend time together in God's Word. And so, church family, if you were expecting to see this uh, on the screen here this morning, you're expecting for us to step back into Ecclesiastes today, my apologies, because we're not going to do that today. We're going to be stepping away from Ecclesiastes, and we're heading for this. This is where we're going for the next few weeks together. A little six-part series called Sola. This month, as maybe you would already know, maybe you wouldn't know this, but this month marks the 500th anniversary of what is known to history as the Great Reformation. Uh, sometimes referred to as the Protestant Reformation. And brothers and sisters, I am excited that we have the freedom and the opportunity to, to step out of our Ecclesiastes series and go in this direction this morning. We're going to come back to Ecclesiastes. It's not, it's not going anywhere. It'll be here when we're, when we're done with Sola. But I'm excited that, that we would get to spend some time with what is truly a I would just call it a watershed moment in the salvation story of each one of us in this room. There is not one of us who has not been eternally impacted by what happened 500 years ago this month. And if you're not aware of that, you need to know about that. Noted church historian Philip Schaff says of this time in history, the Reformation of the 16th century, so that would be the 1500s is next to the introduction of Christianity into the world in the first century the greatest event in history it marks the end of the middle ages and the beginning of modern times it gave directly or indirectly a mighty impulse to every forward movement from then on and made Protestantism the chief propelling force in the history of modern civilization Church family, to say it another way, the Great Reformation is a big deal. And it's important for us as Christians to know something about that and why it's a big deal. However, having said that, I would wish for all of us to know right up front at the beginning of this this series that that I'm not going to, from week to week, be giving us a, a Reformation history lesson. Nor are we going to be talking about Uh, the reformers who were the principal figures that got this whole thing moving 500 years ago. You can go online and you can Google Protestant Reformation. You can Google Martin Luther and you can find more written than you could possibly devour in a lifetime. So that's not how we're going to spend our time. Our goal, our focus for these six weeks is going to be to spend time with five great salvation truths that the Reformation rescued from the grip of religion. 
Five truths that brave, bold, and daring reformers recovered from a corrupt religious system that had all but buried the true gospel of life in Jesus under a mountain of rules and traditions and lies. My hope, my prayer, is that these truths that we're going to share together, truths that shook the hearts of the reformers five centuries ago, would shake our hearts, would shake our lives, our homes, our families, would shake our church, and ultimately perhaps shake our mountain. If biblical Christianity has a center, a a sacred touchstone, it's right here with these five salvation truths that the Great Reformation recovered and brought back into the light. So what are these five truths of the one true gospel? I am so glad that you asked that question because that's the question we're going to answer. Our series, as I mentioned a moment ago, is called Sola. Now, sola is the Latin word for alone. We get our English word solo from this Latin word. If a pilot is flying solo, a pilot is flying what? Flying alone, of course. Or our word solitary comes from this Latin word sola. A person locked up in solitary confinement is locked up alone, all by themselves. We'll get into this a little bit more in a moment, but what the reformers recovered and then sought to protect and to promote were five non-negotiable, essential aspects of what we would call biblical salvation doctrine. And without these, the true gospel, the true way to be saved from an eternity of separation from God in hell cannot be accurately proclaimed nor correctly understood and believed. That's how important this stuff is for us today. Without these, we end up with a false gospel. Without these five solas, we cannot know salvation. As the Reformation, 500 years ago, in a time of of great spiritual darkness, got its footing and, and gathered momentum, these great salvation truths came to be known as the five solas. On your note page, you'll see them in Latin with their English counterparts. Sola Scriptura. Scripture, oh, a little more gusto the next time around. Sola gratia, grace, all right. Sola fide, faith, all right. Solus Christus, in Christ, and soli deo gloria, for God's glory alone. Yes, the five solas. Perhaps you've heard of them before. The five alones of true salvation. Now, the fact that the emphasis is repeatedly on the word alone tells us that the reformers were trying to combat a salvation gospel to which many other things had been added. By the year 1500 in Europe, the Roman Catholic Church, the Latin Church, the Western Church had been deeply entrenched in Europe for centuries. It was an incredibly powerful entity. It was a controlling force. Had you and I lived back then, there would have been no part of our lives that would have not been dictated by the Latin church. It would be very different for us were we living back then than if we were living today because the church that you and I enjoy right now didn't exist 
in 1500. For example, the Roman Catholic Church, the Latin Church that the Reformers confronted and then called out said, we accept the Bible as authoritative, but it is Scripture plus church tradition. It is Scripture plus the Pope, the bishops, and the priests. It is Scripture plus church councils that guide and direct people into a relationship with God. The Bible plus other things will be and is your source for truth. Not the Bible alone, but the Bible plus all these other things. Well, as the Latin church relegated God's word to a support role, if you will, it naturally followed that the true gospel, and what is the true gospel? The true gospel is who Jesus is and what he has done appropriated into my life by grace through faith. That's the true gospel. Yes, said the church, faith in Jesus is necessary for your salvation, but so too are good works and confession and penance and baptism and church membership and church attendance and marriage and last rites and merry worship and indulgences and the treasury of merit and, and, and all these other things. The Latin Catholic Church had over the centuries effectively backed up a dump truck of religious practices and traditions And they just kept adding and adding and adding all kinds of false requirements to the true gospel of salvation through Jesus Christ alone. In each of these five places, these five solas, the reformers identified additions to the gospel. This actually made it impossible for any sinner to to enter into a personal saving relationship with God. It was, it was Jesus plus other stuff that saves. That's what you were taught. That's what you believed. Well, finally, the Reformers said in 1500, enough, enough. You cannot add to Scripture. You cannot add to grace. You cannot add to faith. You cannot add to Jesus' atoning death and victorious resurrection. And salvation's work in a sinner's life is for God's glory alone, not for the church's glory. Add anything to any one of these and you fundamentally take away from them. You have changed the gospel. That's what the reformers cried. And so the five solas hold the true gospel and to add anything to these takes away from them. It subtracts from them. So there on your note page, let's take our Bibles now, which are open to Galatians chapter 1, and let's be reminded of another time when adding, subtracted. When adding to the gospel, subtracted from it. The Apostle Paul planted a number of Jesus-centered churches in a region called Galatia, which is now modern-day Turkey. Jesus himself uh, had commissioned Paul to this work, commanding him to take the message of salvation through faith in himself to the non-Jewish world, to to the Gentile world. And aren't we glad that he did that, right? And we're saved because of that. So Paul is obedient to this command to take the gospel to the Gentiles, and he plants several churches in the region of Galatia. The year is 48 A.D. However, just a year and a half after Paul plants these churches, 
he learns that the Galatian Christians are in serious spiritual trouble, ready to abandon the true gospel of grace alone through faith alone in Jesus alone. He immediately, upon learning this, sends a, a letter, a circular letter to be passed around from church to church to church, and we hold that letter in our hands. It's the book of Galatians. Look at what he writes, beginning in verse 6 of chapter 1. He says, I am what, church? I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him, Jesus, who called you into the grace of Christ and are turning to a different what? A different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be what? Accursed. As we said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one that you received, let him be accursed. Wow. That is strong language. What had happened? Well, After Paul plants these faith in Jesus alone churches, false teachers came in behind Paul with another gospel, a gospel with a small g, not a capital G, a small g. Not the true gospel, but another gospel. And what they said was this, yes, your sins are forgiven by faith in Jesus, but in addition to that, you must obey the Old Testament Mosaic law and the Jewish customs and traditions. Because only then will you enter into the Abrahamic covenant and be truly saved. It was Jesus plus. It was the true gospel plus something added to it. Gospel plus Old Testament law, it equals salvation, said the false teachers. Well, brothers and sisters, these teachers didn't walk into these churches wearing name tags that said, Hi, I'm a false teacher. Believe what I teach and you'll end up in hell. They didn't do that, did they? No, they sounded right. They sounded like they were, they were on point. They used Jesus' name. They said, Believe in Jesus. But then they would add this to those beliefs. And by adding to the true gospel... They actually took away from it. They distorted it. They changed it into an essentially untrue gospel that could never save. Glance across your Bible page into chapter 2 of Galatians and find verse 16. As Paul says to these new Christians, Yet we know, we know that a person is not justified. That, That word means to be pronounced forgiven by God in the court of heaven. A person is not justified by works of the law, but through what, church? Faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith. We could add alone, faith alone in Christ. And not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be saved, justified. What's Paul saying here? (laughs) He's saying the sola gospel, the gospel alone plus nothing equals 
salvation. True salvation. And that's what Paul is saying in this letter. And he will repeat this same truth again in various other places in his writings in the New Testament. For example, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Check this out. We'll put it up on the screen. You can turn there as well if you'd like in your Bible. But here's what Paul writes to the church in Corinth. He says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the, what's the next word? The gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. The true gospel and by which you are being saved, present tense. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures alone. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Of first importance, the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. For the sinner. Nothing more important. Do you remember this? Do you remember this? Yeah? You'd have to be back here. You'd have to be going here in 2015 to remember this, church family. But when we were studying the book of Galatians verse by verse, this was the, this was the cover screen for our series. It was the title, really. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Do you believe it? Yeah. Still believe it? Yeah. Right on. Adding anything to Jesus subtracts from the true gospel. Now, if we go back to verses 8 and 9 of Galatians 1, with the authority given to him by Jesus, Paul condemns every false gospel. But he does more than just condemn the false teaching. He condemns the teachers, too. Let him be accursed, he said in verse 8. And just in case we missed it the first time, he repeats it in verse 9. Let the false teacher be accursed. Let him be damned to hell. You say, really? Paul said that? He really did say that. That's how important this is. Paul will never use stronger, more fired up language than he uses in these two verses. And why such impassioned language? Church family, it's because the gospel of Jesus as given by the Holy Spirit and laid down on the pages of our Bibles by the hands of the apostles is everything. It's everything. It's the most precious truth in the entire universe because it's the only way that a person can be saved from the just judgment of God by the undeserved love of God through the complete and finished work of the Son of God. Amen? His substitutionary death on the cross in our place and His victory over sin and death at the resurrection. That's it. If we don't have that, we don't have anything. And if we have more than that, we don't have anything. Even if an angel appears and tells you something different from the gospel laid down by the Holy Scriptures, let that angel be cursed forever. That's strong language. Church family, early in the 16th century, it wasn't an angel that was proclaiming a false gospel. It was a corrupt religious system that had forsaken the authority of Scripture, had exchanged the cross and the empty tomb for traditions and rituals, and was led by a hierarchy of leaders hungry for self-promotion, for power, and for wealth, and for their own glory, not God's glory. 
And as Paul was compelled to do in the first century, fight for the true gospel, so, so others were compelled to do that in the 1500s. There was an impassioned call by a few for reform from a small courageous few, a call to return to the one true gospel, sola gospel, the gospel alone. And so with that as a backdrop for us this morning, allow me to share just a very brief history of the Reformation. Some of you probably know some Reformation history. Some of you may know nothing about the Reformation. The five solas that we're going to be talking about over the next weeks emerge from a time of real spiritual darkness in Europe. And while an extensive understanding of the Reformation is not required to appreciate the five solas, a little bit of history might help you appreciate the five solas a whole lot more. So let's go in that direction for just a few moments. The Reformation is much bigger and broader than any single date on the calendar or any one person, even though October the 31st, 1517, and Martin Luther seem to get most of the attention when you hear the word Reformation. There were other key figures, though, before Luther, laying a foundation upon which Luther would stand. There was John Huss, and there was John Wycliffe. Both were Catholic priests. Both were, were burned at the stake. Wycliffe in 1384, Huss in 1415. They were burned as heretics by their own church for preaching what you and I would call today the one true gospel. In Wycliffe's case, he was also burned for translating the Bible from Latin into English, which if the Bible could be read by others, would undermine the control of the Latin church. They didn't want you to have your own Bible in in your own language. He was burned at the stake. And I tell you of these burnings because they are but a small indication of the religious climate of the time. This This was reality. This is how it was. The Latin church in the early 16th century was led by Pope Leo X. He was from the wealthy... Italian Medici family of Florence. Pope Leo was the guy who hires Michelangelo to paint the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. Pope Leo is the guy who tries to build the the St. Peter's Basilica, the biggest church in the world, which, by the way, it still holds that title to this day. But, you know, Michelangelo's and colossal basilicas, they come at a very high price. They cost a lot of money. And Pope Leo was desperate for money in the early 1500s. Enter now into the story Albert of Brandenburg. Albert was a Catholic bishop, but he wanted to be the archbishop of Germany. Only he didn't qualify and it was against the church rules. But money, it talks. And so Albert met with Pope Leo and offered him an enormous sum of money if the Pope would make him archbishop. Well, Leo needed the money, and so he agreed. Albert didn't have the money, so he went to, the German, to a German bank, borrowed the money, but it was a huge sum, which he could not afford to pay back. So how would he do that? Well, enter a third character in the story, a Catholic monk named Johann Tetzel. Tetzel became Albert's fundraiser, and they devised a scheme where Tetzel would go into towns and villages in Europe 
and sell what were known as indulgences. An indulgence was essentially a buy forgiveness of sin card. You paid your money and you got a piece of paper that would absolve you of a sin. And so you could pay the church and then you would get a sin that was good for a forgiveness of sin card for something you'd done in the past. You could even buy one in anticipation of a sin you plan to commit in the future, right? And you could actually buy an indulgence for somebody else, a friend or family member, just to keep them out of trouble, right, with God. These indulgences and their sale were endorsed endorsed by Pope Leo. In fact, when you think about it, what better way to raise money than to market the grace of God? And since very few people could read, the average Joe or Jane had no idea that such a thing was not in their Bible and that God did not approve of it. The church said it. They just followed. And they just put out the money. Then Martin Luther joins the story. He's a Catholic monk. He had not planned on being a monk. He was studying to be a lawyer when he happened to get caught out in a terrific electrical storm. And he thought he was going to die. And so in a moment of unbridled terror and fearing death, he pledged to St. Anne, the, the mother of the Virgin Mary, because he's Catholic, he, 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 he said, save me and I'll enter the ministry. I won't be a lawyer, I'll be a priest. Well, he didn't die. And so true to his word, he poured himself into the into the ministry, became a Catholic monk, extremely devoted, a fastidious monk. His soul was constantly in turmoil, though. There, were many, there are many stories of his extreme measures of, of bodily denial, punishment, self-beating, confession, trying to make peace with God by doing things to himself. After graduating from seminary, he's assigned a professor's seat at a small university in the German town of Wittenberg. And it was here, while lecturing through the books of Galatians and Romans, that Luther's heart is laid hold of by the true gospel, the one true gospel. One verse in particular captivated him. It was Romans 1.17, the righteous shall live by faith. By faith alone. His whole life, his whole understanding of God, his approach to God had not been one of living by faith, but living by his own attempts to try to be a good person and be righteous before God, and then God would smile on him and want him because that's what he'd been taught. He'd been taught that he had to earn God's acceptance, earn God's approval, work his way to heaven. But the righteous shall live by faith, he reads. And God used that verse to open Luther's eyes to the truth that had eluded him his whole life while attending church and all those years as a monk in in the the Latin structure. Salvation by faith alone in Jesus alone. Not faith plus something else. Not faith plus trying to be good. Not faith plus observing church traditions. Not faith plus securing an ample number of indulgences. He saw the gospel plus was a false gospel. 
No gospel at all, a gospel that could not save. Well, Albert and Tetzel were doing a brisk business, as you might imagine, selling those indulgences to the common people, paying off these huge debts, making the Pope happy and all of that. Tetzel even developed a jingle to help sell indulgences. It went like this. As soon as a coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. I'm not kidding. I'm not making it up. That's, that was it. In fact, here's a picture of a, of, a, of a 16th century indulgence box. This is what you would have put your money in and found forgiveness of sin. Well, as the light of the true gospel grew brighter for Luther, the more dismayed and the more angry he became with indulgences in the church culture that promoted them. Finally, unable to remain silent, he felt compelled to draft a list of 95 grievances against the Latin church. And these became known as the 95 theses. You ever heard of that? Yeah. He took those 95 grievances, wrote them out on on a large piece of paper, and he nailed them to the door of the Wittenberg church. Now, this is how you posted a blog in 1517. We do it differently, but this is how you did it in that time. It got the word out. It got it out there for public review. So he's posted this blog. In fact, check out thesis number 62 of the 95. On the door, he put these words, challenging the church. The true treasure of the church is the most holy what? Gospel of the glory and grace of God. The truest treasure of the church is the true gospel. Now here are a couple of pictures of the the Wittenberg church door as it appears today. The original doors burned in a fire in 1760, so these bronze ones were constructed that actually have the 95 theses molded into them. So if you ever visit Wittenberg, you will definitely see this. Most, uh, most mark this event, the nailing of the 95, as the official beginning of the Reformation. But as I said a moment ago, it's, it's older and it's much bigger than just that. So we move forward. Luther writes more. The invention of the printing press in 1440 allows literature to be duplicated uh, as never before. Luther's ideas, his books begin to flood Germany. The common people who had no Bible in their own language, simply trusting the teaching of the church for the very first time, were exposed to the true gospel of God's grace, granted not by the church, not by the Pope, not by indulgences, but by God through a personal repentance and faith in Jesus alone. That was brand new for them. Well, Pope Leo, as you might expect, he was not a happy Pope. He described Luther as a wild boar loose in the vineyard. He ordered Luther to give an account at a trial held in the city of Worms. And here Luther, when ordered by the Pope to recant of his heretical writings, refused. And he delivered this most famous of his statements on April the 15th, 1521. Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the Holy Scriptures or by evident reason, for I can believe neither Pope nor councils alone, as it is clear that they have erred repeatedly and contradicted themselves, I consider myself convicted by the testimony of Holy Scripture. 
That is key. Which is my basis. My conscience is captive to the word of God. Thus I cannot and will not recant because acting against one's conscience is never safe nor sound. God help me. Amen. (laughs) He was summarily excommunicated by the Pope, which at that time meant that you had no hope of going to heaven. You were going to go to hell. The Pope declared it. So do you think Luther was worried? No, no, (laughs) no. Why wasn't he worried? He had the the true gospel right here in his heart. For his own safety from assassins within the church who wanted him dead, friends kidnapped him, took him to the Wartburg Castle where he spent the next 10 months in hiding. And while he was there, he translates the Greek New Testament into street German in 10 weeks. An amazing feat. His translation was widely popular because it allowed the common German people to read the Bible for themselves for the very first time. Reformation fever swept through Western Europe. Other figures emerged who were highly influential like Ulrich Zwingli from Switzerland, John Calvin in Geneva, John Knox in Scotland and others, and they preached and they wrote and they preached and they wrote and they protested. They protested the teachings of the Western Latin Church acquiring the title of Protestants, which then morphed into Protestants, right? That's, that's, that's how we got the Protestant Reformation. And if you are a lover of Jesus today in the Reformed way, You are a Protestant. Well, there you have it. A quick primer on Reformation history. And that's about all you're going to get from me on Reformation history going forward. On your note page, though, let's wrap things up by asking this question. Why should the Reformation matter to me? That was 500 years ago. Why does that matter to me today? Short answer, three of them. Because God used it to give the true gospel, the sola gospel, back to the Western world, and you are part of that world, right? Hey, church family, if it wasn't for the Reformation and the things, and things had remained the way they had been, you and I would not be sitting here today. Idlewild Bible Church would not be on this hill today. The true gospel had been lost, and you and I would be lost with it. That makes the Reformation important to us, does it not? And secondly, the Reformation matters to us because gospel plus is still a danger today, is it not? Paul said in Galatians 1, 6, and 7, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Well, brothers and sisters, that's happening all the time all around us. Paul wrote those words less than two years after planting those churches. Now they're in danger of caving in to false teaching and adding to the gospel. Just two years after he gave it to them. Messing with the gospel, trying to improve upon the gospel. The tragedy tragedy is that when anyone adds to the gospel, they actually take away from it. You don't get the true gospel anymore. So here we are 2,000 years separated from the true gospel as it was first given 
If less than two years could find the church tampering with Jesus alone, what could happen in 2,000 years? Brothers and sisters, gospel plus teaching is all around us. It's up the street here on Pinecrest. It's down on Tollgate. It's on North Circle. Jesus' name is called upon. You'll hear His name there in those places. Bible verses are going to be recited. The claim to be Christian will be in place and ardently defended. But in those places, the message proclaimed, if you are able to hear it, will be a message of gospel plus good works equals salvation. Or gospel plus emotional experience equals salvation. Or gospel plus social causes equals salvation. Or gospel plus tradition equals salvation. These are false gospels, church family. Millions of people continue to attend churches where it is not salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, because scriptures alone says so. How many gospel plus followers will step into eternity only to find out that they're not trusting only in Jesus, but they're really trusting in themselves to save them? Their trust was was Jesus plus something that they did. That's not a gospel that saves. The Reformation matters to us because our friends and our neighbors and our family members may be believing a lie and not even know that they're believing a lie. How will they know if we don't tell them the true gospel? And how would we have the true gospel to tell them if there had not been a Reformation? And last there, the Reformation matters because, brothers and sisters, we must never forget how we are saved. The reason this is critical is because though we may be saved by Jesus alone and believe that with all all our heart and affirm it as so in this moment, we still have an old sin nature residing within us though we are saved. And that, that old sin nature is pride infected and it never wants to stop trying to take credit for what only God can do. And so even as a Christian, without much effort, we can find ourselves subtly beginning to think, well, if I if I'm especially good or I serve in the church, or I give generously from my income, or I'm kind and I love the unlovable and I show compassion and I don't lie and I don't covet and I don't lust, well, then God will smile on me more. And he'll be pleased with me more and I'll improve my standing with him. It's very subtle, but very dangerous. The true gospel destroys those lies. We cannot improve on Jesus' imputed righteousness in our life. We can't be loved more by God than we already are. Do you believe that today? The righteous live by faith in Jesus alone. That's what the Reformers fought for and why we should remember this watershed moment. We'll always need what only the true gospel provides. It drives into the deepest part of us the reality that we are great sinners. But the love of God and the cross and the resurrection of Jesus are greater than our sin. Amen and amen. Let's pray together.
And church family, as we take a moment and we pray, we're about to step into a very sacred space, a place of remembering not the Reformation, but remembering the cross, where the true gospel resides, the cross of Jesus and his resurrection. In this moment, having bumped up now against the true gospel, let's, let's with all of our heart and mind focused, let's draw before this table of remembrance and take the cup and the bread together as a church family and declare once again our affirmation that it is by grace alone through faith alone, in Jesus alone, for the glory of God alone, declares the scripture alone that we are saved. If you know Jesus as Lord and Savior, this moment belongs to you. And so now church will will create a quiet space for you, just a little instrumental background for you to come forward and Get the elements, take them back to your seat, and then just you and your Savior talk together for a few moments. And just, just pour out your heart of gratitude to him that he has revealed the true gospel to you and that you are saved through faith in him alone. And then we'll partake of the elements together. So with that, please come, take the elements back to your seat and wait and we'll... We'll share them.